The Energy Matters to You podcast is a communication platform that features technologies and thought leaders working to advance energy efficiency. The Energy Matters to You podcast seek to connect buyers with sellers so that practical, cost-effective energy efficiency and sustainable energy solutions continue to gain market traction. Well, hello and welcome to Energy Matters to You. Today is September 10th. 2021. My name is Leo Ryan. I'm along here with my co-host Ron Galuli. Always a pleasure to be with you, Ron. Good morning, Leo. It's good to see you. Uh, it's been a while. We've had a bit of a break since the summer, but um, we have a special guest today and we have two more lined up in October. So um, we're right back at it. Outstanding. You've done your, done your job recruiting. Well done. Try to, yeah. Well, good. Well, I was looking over some of the, the stats on the uh, Energy Matters 2 Podbean site and uh, happily saw that uh, we've got over 2,500 downloads in the 27 episodes that we've done since 2017. It's kind of amazing that, that much time's passed. Well, we have more and more um, you know, industry partners reaching out to us to be on the podcast. So there's a lot of interesting technologies out there, a lot going on in the energy space, greenhouse gas reduction. So it's really an exciting time. Yeah, right. And we, as we've said, we, we try to make this a, a commercial so that uh, these technologies can can gain traction and answer some of the common questions that people have as they're investigating solu- solutions. Yep, and just uh, help them gain some market exposure. Well, good. So I'm real excited about uh, our, our next guest today, our, our guest this morning. Uh, so we've got someone from, we've got the, the, uh, the CEO of uh, Q Hydrogen, uh, Whit Irvin. Uh, who uh, kind of splits his time between Utah and New Hampshire or something like that. We'll find out more. Whit, welcome to Energy Matters to you. Thank you, Leo. Thank you, Ron. You know, I'm going to start with this. I don't even know. What was the connection? How did you and Ron get uh, get connected to get you here? Well, it's our great people over at Rubenstein. Uh, we have Rubenstein out of Manhattan uh, handling our PR, and they had a connection with Ron, and, and everyone thought this would be a good match for us. Beautiful. Well, we're so happy. Great. I often say that if, if you're in the clean tech sector, certainly in New England, and you don't know Ron Galuli, then you, you're just not in the sector. <laughs> so why don't you just give us the, the, uh, the elevator uh, explanation of what Q-Hydrogen is, and then we'll dig a little deeper into it. Sure. Well, essentially, at Q-Hydrogen, what we've discovered is a new method to produce hydrogen that is renewable and uh, makes it financially viable. So we're building what will be the world's first hydrogen power plant that is renewable and economically feasible at the same time. Outstanding. Well, you've hit some key words there. You just think about what's happening in the renewable energy space. The you know the fastest growing sectors of a of a deteriorating energy grid are all in the renewable sector. Uh, so hydrogen is not new in this area. And, and what, what's um, Q Hydrogen done that's, that's special and unique in this space with, with, uh, with regard to hydrogen? Well, you're right. Hydrogen is not new. It's been something folks have been talking about for decades, this idea of the hydrogen economy and all the other things that, that could be possible if there was just a way to make it inexpensively. It was also environmentally friendly. Um, so our technology um, helps check those boxes, but it was not how the technology was initially developed. So. We have a whole body of intellectual property that, that's filed globally. We have patents all over the world where IP is something that's useful to protect your technology. 
And the hydrogen discovery in our portfolio happened around 2007 uh, while working on some other things. So since that time, there's been initial or continued development of the technology. Overall, the IP has been under development now for over 25 years. So it was a long development cycle to get us to this point of commercialization, but we're almost ready for prime time. And our plan is to open our facility up in Northern New Hampshire later this year. That's great. We're, we're going to spend most of the conversation on that the commercialization, but I'm really curious about that that pathway of development. And uh, going to your website, it looks like there's some two things I noticed. One is that your advisor board looks really fascinating. I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, that but the development of that of that IP and, and the patents. Can you talk just a little bit about how that process went and what are some of the the unique roads you've gone down with that? Yeah. So the technology itself was actually developed by my father, Witt Sr. Uh, he was an industrialist in Latin America, and uh, he says one of his favorite stories is to talk about how he reached the top of the mountain and looked down and didn't like what he saw. And he felt that his generation and previous generations had been poor stewards of this planet, so wanted to figure out a way to help. And the development of this IP actually started with the idea of trying to solve some issues in HVAC, so large industrial heating and cooling applications or some massive manufacturing facilities where water is not plentiful and power is extremely expensive. So development started in that world um, back with some thought forms, as he called it, when we left Texas and moved to Maryland. My dad shut himself in the library of their house in Maryland outside of DC and um, started to take some of these ideas and, and turn them into the engineering renderings and drawings and the various forms of computer-aided design and modeling, and um, then created the first prototype back in 2006, I believe, was kind of phase one. And that was an HVAC application, and it was small, but he's the first one to utilize what's called hyperbolic waveform geometry put into what is, I guess you could call a spinning conductor. So these things look like turbines, essentially. And the first version of the turbine um, produced instantaneous streams of air, one around 140 degrees Fahrenheit and the other around 42 degrees Fahrenheit, using nothing but a small electric motor to move this turbine that was uh, machined out of aluminum. So the turbine itself, when he had it done, uh, we had hired, or he had hired what was at the time one of the most advanced CNC milling companies in the world to do it. They thought, oh, this looks like a waffle mold, so no big deal. Well, they didn't realize what hyperbolic geometries um, actually meant when it came to the machining side of it. And it was millions of lines of machine code because hyperbolics are not mathematically calculable on an XYZ plane. So it's kind of like you think of a smooth sine wave. And so phase one, this company said they believed that it, at that time was one of the most complicated pieces of machining that had ever been done. And it caused them to have to do a $15,000 memory upgrade on what was at that time state of the art. So that was the beginning. And now, of course, we're on to billions of lines of machine code and far more uh, advanced turbines, like the turbine that we're going to be using for the facility up in New Hampshire. But the IP path essentially is, is uh, full of that strategy of, okay, you, you file, you let your provisionals expire, then you file again to keep the clock going until you're ready to actually file and then have the, the, uh, the patent reviewed and granted. 
So there was a, a long period of back and forth on that until around 2011, 2012, where the patents actually had to go through the patent office said, okay, we understand your strategy. The time has come now though, where you have to actually file and go through the whole prosecution process. So we started that and we had our international um, rights granted prior to our US to ensure that we could make sure that the technology would be usable all around the world. And since then, um, we've been working with a firm out of Washington, D.C. called Kahn and Samuels. Um, they are all engineers and scientists prior to being attorneys, and they have expertly helped craft our IP strategy and continue to work with us to this day, and we're having patents granted globally all the time. Outstanding. That is, it is such a long path. Think about your dad being inspired to, you know, to, to, to do greater good for, for, for mankind and then going into the engineering realm. And then, you know, from the paper, from the design drawings to an actual application, it's a long process. So yes. understand the development, filing of patents, and then now working with regulators. I'm really curious about that. So how, how do you take this to market? Well, it was interesting. Um, we had a lot of smart people beyond us. You saw our, our group of advisors and others. And first there was, looking at our overall portfolio and deciding what was the first best path to take. There were a couple missteps as far as what we were initially trying to commercialize, because let's just say some of our other technology is more esoteric in nature. And so that creates uh, a lot more back and forth, a lot more discussion. Whereas hydrogen is something people have been ready for, for such a long time. So we made that a focus of the company. And as far as the commercialization side is concerned, it was a decision of, okay, what type of an application are we going to go with first? Because hydrogen can be used in so many different ways. You can use it in transportation. You can use it for chemical production. You can use it, the, one of the largest users is production of ammonia or fertilizer. Um, and the decision was made among the group that going after power was the first best use because of what it means to the industry. If you're saying that you have a clean method to produce hydrogen, and you're utilizing stereotypical generation technology to produce that electricity. And then you're also saying you can still make money doing that without government subsidies. That's a big deal. So um, we knew that New England was the place to start. Actually, right now I'm talking to you from my hotel room in Boston. And I know you all are in the area somewhere too. And um, the I, we were first looking at Massachusetts um, or New Hampshire. And New Hampshire, that path made a lot more sense for a lot of reasons. Uh, have some friends up there that, that were connected governmentally speaking and others. So met with the governor, uh, Sununu, met now many, many years ago, met with regulators in various areas, talked with different law firms that are in the energy space. And the decision was made that New Hampshire made the most sense to start. So I kind of went on this road trip, so to speak, of looking at a bunch of different biomass facilities that were going offline because they were no longer financially viable with Rex, seeing if that was where we were going to start because we can actually integrate this technology into already existing facilities and modify. And in that process, um, we had two groups with us, um, an EPC firm out of Utah called Brahma Group, and then some consultants from California. And after going to all these different sites with me, ironically, the one that I thought was the least suitable became the one that made the most sense, which is where uh, we've been building this power plant up in Groveton, New Hampshire, where the former Wausau paper mill was that closed in around uh, the early 2000s, 
early to mid 2000s. So we purchased that facility in the end of 19 and we've been uh, working on it ever since. Our, uh, the global issues with COVID of course caused some delays related to supply chain and other things. So we're opening um, roughly a year later than we had hoped, but we're almost there. So um, I'll let you guys ask more questions. That's helpful. And what you're doing a good job like going through one of the biggest challenges that the renewable sector has, we're trying to we're trying to green the production of energy throughout the United States, throughout the world. And yeah. one of the biggest challenges is is in heavy manufacturing. So whether it's pulp or pulp and paper, uh, large chemicals, concrete, these industries are notoriously big energy users and can't really rely on an intermittent resource like like uh, wind and solar. Yep. So it's it's kind of no surprise that you end up in a little paper mill because it's a heavy uh, energy user. And you know, Ron, I just want to go to you about that whole this whole battery challenge and application in in, in large manufacturing facilities. You you've seen how it's failed. Yeah, I mean, right now, um, you know, batteries they may have two to four hour discharge or, or longer, depending on how you use the battery. I know flow batteries in Somerville is looking at long duration storage, but with the problem you're solving uh, is revolutionary, really, because you have all this natural gas still in New England on a hot day. I think it's about 60 or 70 percent generations uh, powered by natural gas, which now yeah. gas is a dirty word in the environmental industry. Right. It used to be clean, you know, a little more than a decade ago. So it seems like the generation opportunities are endless. And then, you know, from there, you might get into transportation uh, and so on. Yes. So I'll give you a, a little overview of some of the other things we're looking at. So we have our facility up in New Hampshire. This is going to be uh, beyond generation of electricity. It's going to be kind of like our, our global showcase for some follow-on uh, projects that we already have in the pipeline in places like Sweden and Germany. And to give you an example of, of additional uses, um, in, in Sweden, what we are now in the process of, of signing some solid LOIs on, it's a, at least a 200 megawatt power plant, and that would be the first of many with one of six different municipalities. And so that facility is, is going to be the first one in Europe related to power and it'll be backed by a, a 25 to 30 year PPA. We're working with various investment banks and figuring out our steps on that plant itself, as well as uh, an engineering group called TUV um, out of Europe. That's kind of like the European version of UL that does certifications of facilities like this. So our little facility in New Hampshire is going to be getting a lot of attention from Europe, European regulators and, and other groups that are part of our longer term strategy globally. And so that first power plant in Sweden is one of six. The total uh, commitments we have in the pipeline there right now are at about 1300 megawatts of power plants. And then when you talk about other industries, I, I heard you mention Leo, cement, et cetera. Um, we are also in uh, negotiations toward putting pen to paper on what will be a 250,000 kilogram a day production facility for use in green steel production in Germany. Great. So those are some of the exciting things that are happening. And of course, our end goal is to really also expand within the United States. And, and Ron, with your familiarity with the grid, et cetera, you know that there are sometimes difficulties when you're talking about interconnects, et cetera. 
And sometimes these queues can be ridiculously long as far as connecting your plant onto the grid. So um, I've been working directly with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, as well as the Biden administration on seeing what can be done to help ease those issues, not only for us, but for others that are in the renewable space so we can ensure that more of this type of power gets onto the line. Yes, cer certainly the interconnection has been the Achilles heel uh, in the renewable en energy industry um, with the utilities. Just It's just a very time-consuming and slow process. Um, yeah. I do have a question with regard to microgrids. A lot of talk about microgrids. Um, we just had Hurricane Ida come through devastating damage um and you know that that regenerates that conversation about the importance of microgrids so would you be going to smaller units eventually that that may lend themselves to microgrids um definitely so actually our facility up in groveton is an example of a microgrid because the the original plan was not to even do a grid interconnection at that site it was to provide power directly to what is basically 140 acres and attract users from all over the place, other industries to that area, Groveton, with the idea that, that our power rates would be roughly half of what's normally associated with industrial power in New England. So it makes things more cost competitive, um, more like what you would see in the Carolinas or in Texas, but using a renewable source to do it. Um, right now, one of the challenges has been finding those off-takers. We've actually, as we get closer to opening, we're getting much closer to finding those off-takers in various forms. We're starting out with 10 megawatts, and then we have the potential to grow up to 100 megawatts on that site, assuming that everything all falls into place with regulatory issues and other things. <clears throat> and so the, the answer, the long-winded answer is yes. Uh, microgrids are definitely a target, and we have various sizes of uh, of these turbines to produce less hydrogen as well for those types of cases. Yeah, and you, what you're bringing some to the mind, uh, increasingly we're all hearing about um, a, a priority by municipalities, by industry to demonstrate that they're, uh, they're reducing their carbon footprint. So yeah. we see that with industry associations, we see with uh, with large corporations being a commitment to, uh, to, be, to being net zero um, companies or communities. And uh, what are you telling folks about um, uh, Q Hydrogen's ability to help them meet those uh, net zero and, and carbon footprint reduction goals? So specifically when we talk about industry, we are in discussions with um, certain folks, let's say like global beverage companies, et cetera, that have um, large power needs and also have these goals to be net zero by a certain period of time. Um, a lot of them, had that idea by purchasing offsets, thinking, okay, we'll reach it by dealing with offsets, but we don't have a grid, let's say that's near us that actually allows us to utilize this type of electricity for their production. So we're in discussions with many people in that realm where they've had the offset discussion, but they want to actually have it on site. So for example, you can have users that, that utilize between two to five megawatts of electricity in cases like that, it's big enough for us to say, okay, we can do an installation there and provide them electricity and it's green as long as there's some source of water. And it doesn't even have to be fresh, it can be brackish water. We there, There's not a lot of processing that has to happen in order to make it usable for what we're doing. Yeah, good. Good, well, um, the thing I was curious about is that in this space, in any kind of technology, nobody wants to be first. 
right? They want to be second or third. I, I heard the the uh, one of the, the leaders of Cape Wind just, they was asked the question, what have you learned from the process? He said, and his response was, don't go first. <laughs> well, we're actually excited to be first, but it was not a, a quick road. I mean, you can come up with a new idea that's still benchtop scale and scream about it being the best thing that, since sliced bread on from the top of the mountains and then never get there. So, so when you talk about our website not having very much information on it, et cetera, this was all done on purpose. A lot more is coming soon, but it's because of that long development cycle, that little over quarter century now, um, that we've been very careful and we're ready for being the first. So we're, we're actually excited about it. And I think that we've, we've had a lot of conversations with a lot of the right people all around the world and, and we're, uh, we're almost ready for prime time. We have one last question. It seems like um, once the technology is proven that permitting might be a little bit easier just because you're not, you don't have the emissions uh, issue. I know, for example, in Rhode Island, a big gas plant was uh, pretty much, uh, fought, you know, the, the neighborhoods fought back on it. And that's, I don't think it's happening now. Um, so it seems like permitting might be a little bit easier due to the, the green uh, nature Correct. of the generation? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <clears throat> that's part of what we've seen in New Hampshire specifically, because you have to work with DES, the Department of Environmental Services and others to get these permits. But what we're finding at least right now with, with phase one is our emissions, what we're, we don't have the uh, data specifically related to the the natural gas reciprocators we're going to be using that run on hydrogen for these regulators. So what we've been doing is utilizing just the natural gas um, emissions profiles for the initial step. And in New Hampshire, that has worked for us because we're still under their requirement for even having an air permit. But in New Hampshire, we're putting in all of the right equipment, all the right monitoring, et cetera, to be able to provide that information to regulators. So you are right as we move forward, it'll be much easier to get permits in these other states because we'll have all that data readily available. Excellent. So with, as we close out here, is there any final, one final message that you want to get out to the, to folks who might be listening about how they can help Q hydrogen or what you might need or how you want to connect? What kind of message you want to leave us with? Well, what I can definitely say is we're excited to bring this technology out to the world. And I feel like the grassroots effort on, on people's desire to have new technology like this out there is so important. So um, perhaps the message someday will be that we, we need you all to rally for us when we're dealing with some political stuff. The, the, the grassroots ground campaigns are, are far more useful in, in times where lobbyists may not be able to achieve those end goals. <laughs> well said, well said. Oh, good. Ron, anything else before we let it go? Uh, no, you just um, touched on a really important point because I used to do grassroots community relations for transmission projects. Um, and it's amazing what you can get done if you really spend the time working face-to-face -face with the neighbors and the constituents. Um, you know, there, there's always the ones that are very difficult to deal with, but in general, if, if you go about it that way, um, I think it can make it a lot easier to do the permitting. Exactly. Exactly. 
That's great. Well, I want to thank uh, Whit Irwin, CEO of Q Hydrogen, for being our guest today on Energy Matters to you. We'll be paying attention and rooting for you. So thanks for taking time and joining us here. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Great. Talk thank you. Thank behalf, you. On behalf of Ron Gluley and Leo Ryan, we're signing off from Energy Matters to you. There's work to be done. Go make a difference. Thanks so much.